Welcome to Word is Truth. This is Doug Presley. It's 3-14-2021, and we're continuing where we left off in our service with the thought of the week and prayer. Go right ahead. I thought of the week. Some have professed their trust in Christ for his death on their behalf, but continue to think in terms of their own or their church standards of goodness. This causes a problem and creates false conclusions about salvation. For instance, some believe that once you are saved by grace, you must maintain some standards of righteousness or else you may be lost. They maintain that this, even though the scripture is clear that salvation is a free gift, given in grace and not of works, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. More modern ideas have advanced the idea that the person who cannot seem to behave according to their standards, well, they were likely never properly saved in the first place. Either way, the person is being judged based on the righteousness they produce after salvation. For their salvation, again, this is direct salvation with their imperfect work. God's work says we receive righteousness by grace. And it is through the redemption that called came by Christ Jesus. Not through their not through our erratic attempt at righteousness after salvation. Then once we receive then once we receive this Perfect righteousness by faith, God justifies us forever. This justification is not conditional or based on our good works. <clears throat> it is by grace and pity souls on those who have faith in Christ to ignore. This is to manufacture your own status of righteousness and then assume God will accept you, accept it. However, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways, declares the Lord. We we would do well to take God's acceptance of our conditions and its perfect solutions since we are the end, the ones lost in Adam. Sort of the way. Most of us don't understand the condition of salvation, first of all. Most of believe that once you're saved, you can lose it depending upon your work. But the scripture says it's totally the opposite. So a lot of times, most people got to be educated to understand the, the condition of salvation. Salvation is free. It's a free gift. And it's not that our righteousness is God's righteousness. The way he imputes, our, he, he imputes the, those who believe in Christ the righteousness, so we will accept him based upon what he is, not based upon what we are. Salvation is free. We don't deserve it. But yet, it's freely given to us by those who believe in his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who have performed the work on the cross for three hours straight. So this is what I get at the thought of the week. So we will send it, we will, uh, hand it over to the white who will lead us in prayer. 
Thank you very much, Dave. And um, before I start, are there any special requests? as well. We are getting ready to get right into where we are. And John, and just to note, as we said earlier, it's been about six months since we studied, uh, began the study of John chapter 15. And last week we finished uh, the last verse. And so it's about six months of our time and I appreciate everybody for hanging in there. There was a lot of information. Uh, we tried to take our time and, and go through it verse by verse, phrase by phrase. And I gl I'm glad that uh, this group hung in there and uh, persisted and we're at the end of John chapter 15. It was a great chapter, a lot has been said. We're going to go over a review of the chapter. So you should have some notes. <clears throat> and in your notes, one of the most important highlights of John 15 is to understand it from the context created in the chapters 13 and 14. The understanding that Jesus was introducing a new dispensation with the promise of the Holy Spirit 
to continue where he leaves off is the point. Jesus said he was going to build his church, and that is exactly what we see him doing in the discourse, in this discourse. He introduces the church and the relationships on which it is based. He departs physically and is resurrected, finalizing the plan of salvation. Obviously, uh, the disciples are in good hands after his departure, since Christ continues to lead and direct the church through the spirit of truth. If the thrust of this is missed, the discourse is not interpreted in the light of the development of the church. It is then relegated to being harmonized with the Old Testament and its glory marginalized. We'll take some time to review this momentous chapter. So, I have to say, John 15 was not one of those chapters where I thought, wow, this is one of the most favorite chapters. But I can tell you, John 15 uh, was momentous. It has, especially as you see it within the context of it laying uh, the introduction for what Christ was doing in the church. We're so grateful for what God has preserved for us in John chapter 15. Um, I can't wait till 16. I'm just as excited about uh, what is ahead, as, as well as 17. It's, it's, the, the words of Christ are poignant. Uh, they're his words just before he departs. Their meaning uh, and how serious and solemn they are, are for each one of us to lean forward and really listen. So I'm going to start. We broke it up in some sections, whether or not these sections are, I just kind of look for places where the, the words may have changed. But let's dig in. So John chapter 15, 1 through 6, the vine and the branches. So we begin with the Father as the gardener. It is the Father's plan that is realized through Jesus as the vine. So that's one thing to note when we first look at John chapter 15, we see this analogy being developed between the vine and the branches. We covered a lot. We talked about how uh, Israel also is also used as the, the vine, and uh, God has planted a vineyard and so forth, and Israel is, is that vineyard, and, and God expects to produce, it produce a fruit the fruit of the vineyard, but it does not produce good fruit. In the Old Testament, we saw that analogy as being used of Israel. However, given where we are in the context of John chapter 14, even 13, we should know that um, he's talking not about Israel, but the church. This is something completely new. The father is the gardener. So the father being the gardener means that it is the father who is, is, you know, planting the quality of fruit that he wants. The kind of fruit that he wants is what the father plants. It is, to note, it is not necessarily what Christ plants. 
It is what the Father plans. And Christ is divine, meaning whatever the Father does goes through the vine to the branches, and then not only just to the branches, but through the branches to the kind of fruit that the Father wanted. So we should know that analogy, and there's a lot to it. We, we developed it quite a bit, so we just wanted to touch on that point. Next one is point B, the Father is actively working in the vineyard, and by the way, all of this happens after Pentecost. So when we look at John chapter 15, the disciples literally were standing there hearing these words that Christ is divine, you know, we are the branches, we are, the ex expectation is that we would produce fruit. But notice, none of this really is going to happen until after Pentecost. The disciples couldn't bear this type of fruit. They weren't abiding in Christ. They didn't even understand how, what that meant. So it's an analogy that Christ is developing, but we just wanted to point out that it happens after Pentecost. It, this is not for Israel. Point C, you are already clean. So we must know that it is about how we can bear fruit for the Father's eternal purpose. It is not a metaphor on salvation. I've seen so many people take the words that are used here twist them into some salvation construct and then decide, oh, if you don't bear fruit, then uh, then you lose your salvation. Salvation is not of works, not of fruit, not of anything that comes from us. This is about production that is produced through us. And God doesn't use unbelievers in this, in this case to produce the fruit that he desires. He uses believers. And uh, so it is a metaphor of how we can produce fruit in the church age. That's how we have to see this. Uh, according to the scriptures, you are already clean through the word I've spoken to you. Uh, that has to mean salvation. We, we went back and dealt with how uh, God the Lord Jesus Christ didn't give this information until after Judas Iscariot left them. We'd have to go back to John chapter 13 for that. And then he talks about you are already clean. Uh, but later when Judas was there, he says you are all clean except one of you. Not everybody's clean. One of you is a devil. <clears throat> this he referred to Judas Iscariot. So that already clean, we hashed out to understand that it was a reference to salvation. So we know we're talking about salvation and not that fruit bearing is contingent upon your salvation. Whether you bear fruit or not has nothing to do with salvation. Salvation is why. Salvation is not of works, not of ourselves, the gift of God, not of works, less than your master boast, not even of works done in righteousness, Titus 3, 5. So, point D, just as a father accomplishes his will through the vine, we bear fruit by abiding in the vine. So, it's, it's a sort of cascading effect. It's the father's will. It is his purpose that he plants the vineyard, and then the vine grows, and then the vine uh, has to bear fruit through its branches. So in each case, each divine must abide in the Father, although that is a given. Christ never sinned. He never 
uh, abode not in the Father. He never was outside of the Father's will. So we don't see injunctions for Christ to abide in the Father or, or so forth because he already, he always does the Father's will. He came and he says, it is my will to do the will of the one who sent me. So Christ performed perfectly. Question is, we don't. So we do have the command for us. If we don't remain in the vine, we cannot bear fruit. We can't bear fruit by ourselves. What an analogy. We could talk about it and think about it for quite a while. So the cascading effect of really it's the Father's plan. It is through Christ. It is who is our Lord. And, and, is, and it's through abiding in him that we can bear the Father's fruit. Point E, the fruit we bear is directly related to the Father's will. We should know that. It is not only Christ comes up with something and it's his plan. And No, everything, and John 16, 14, and 15 says, everything that we I receive uh, from the Father is mine. Christ says, everything I have I receive from the Father, it's mine. That's We're going to get to that in John 16, but literally Christ receives from the Father, the plan, everything. It's not some things, and Christ made up the difference. It's directly related to what the Father planted or wanted in the first place. Point F. We might bear fruit in this world as believers, but it must be the fruit the Father desires, and that is according to his eternal purpose. There are no other options. None. So if you want to bear fruit, now, you know, a lot of people think, well, what's bearing fruit? What's good works? Well, good works is helping an old lady across the street. I know this is maybe a Boy Scout thing, and I'm playing around with it. But whatever your conception of, oh, you know what? I just did that thing, and I, that was a good thing. Well, our good works have to be qualified by what the Father wants, not by what we think is good. We may think, oh, you know, I did, you know, that was a good thing. I gave that person food and they were hungry. Or I gave them shelter and they were hungry. Right? All of our good works must be filtered from and through what the Father desires. We're not here for, you know, any purpose and every purpose that somebody might come up with. And I would say that the world... There are purposes that are humanitarian in their objective. But just imagine what God's purpose is. It is that nobody is lost. He is not willing that any should perish. He wants everybody to be saved. I mean, that can't be any higher purpose than that. This life is temporary. We know we're going to pass off the scene if enough years pass by. We know that. So whatever we do, God is saying, when we get to the judgment seat of Christ, he is going to evaluate the things that we have done while in the body. And, and what's going to be a criteria for that evaluation is not going to be, well, we really were sincere about the works we were doing. We were, um, you know, sincerely honest about how we proceeded about these works. None of that is going to be the question. It is going to be, 
whether or not the spirit of truth is what he motivated you to do what you've done because he's motivating you to do what is according to the father's plan and the works that you do are what he motivates you to do that's one and then two are the works that he equips you to do according to whatever spiritual gift you have so in those two areas we can perform good works and whether they be part of our ambassadorship or God wants us to go out and preach the gospel whether they be part of uh, our being a herald for the mystery age which is the the message that God is trying to now uh, get to the world and to angels whatever good works God is allowed or permitted to do through us we will be rewarded I just threw in a few reward scriptures for you. 1 Corinthians 3, 14 and 15. Uh, it talks about ministers, how they will receive a reward. Some won't. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, every one of us must stand before the judgment seat of Christ that we may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body. And then Hebrews chapter 6, 7 and 8 gives another analogy uh, appropriate for what we're talking about in this section. Land that drinks in the rain, often fallen upon it, produces a crop that is useful for uh, those whom it is farmed. And then verse 8 talks about, uh, but land that produces thorns and thistles is in danger of being cursed, right? So it's talking about the different works that are produced and the, the reaction of God at the judgment seat of Christ. How some works will be judged and they will be discarded or burned or is another way of saying they will be judged so that we should know that that that's why we're here so when people say well i don't believe in the church age i don't believe that, that that's the plan well then that's what the father planted here that's what he's doing and if you don't believe in it or you don't want to cooperate with it then you certainly are not going to be abiding in Christ, who is certainly co cooperating with the Father's plan. So that whole section cannot be summed up in a little bit of time we took here in these six or seven points. I, it, we really need to, you know, to go back and really, there's so many other points that have been brought out and that we're, we're not going to, this is a review, so we have the record already. So, in second, the second point, uh, in second section, is John 15, 7 through 11. So, I say here, the conditions set forth. So, what do I mean by that? So, the question becomes, John 15, 7, it says, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So, it will be interesting that... Um, if we didn't have verse 7 in this section here, because this section sets the tone, I think. And if, you know, some people could say, well, it says abide in him, and, and abide in him means just I'm being devotional, and I'm just going to do whatever I read in the scriptures. Uh, you know, I could, that could mean anything. But now, God is making it very um, descriptive of what he means when he says that we are to abide or remain in him. So the quest, first question I have is, how do we remain in him? And I quote right there, 
if you remain in me and my words remain in you. So, so we know now there's, there's a reciprocal relationship here. It's not just our whatever we think and, okay, I'm devoted to God. I'm devoted to Christ. No, there's two things here. If you remain in me and my words remain in you. What, what words? And he's talking about the discourse where he's introducing the church age talking to the disciples that's abiding in Christ it means you your his words would remain in you and his words are not only echoed through what he said his words continue to echo through God the Holy Spirit who is the spirit of truth who would come after Christ it is it is important that we see it's about his word you have to be on the same page as God. You can't just be on your own page thinking you're doing what is right. And then you've come to find out at the judgment seat of Christ that you, his words didn't remain in you. you. You heard him, yeah, but they didn't have any particular distinction or you didn't care about his words. You were more concerned with your plan than the Father's plan. So I gave four points. These are coming from the notes back when we did this, way back in September, October time frame of last year. So these four points, I will just give them now. We must hear, point one is we must hear and understand the words. And the only way we're going to get that is from the spirit of truth. Well, listen, we weren't there when Christ spoke these words, he, that he gave this discourse. But what, where do we get the words from? Spirit of truth. That's how we understand them. Just hearing, reading them, that's not enough. You have to understand them. How do you do that? It's through the spirit of truth. First, you have to hear and understand the words. Then, you have to believe the words. Just like it says, you believe in God, believe also in me. So what Jesus is getting ready to tell them, he's getting ready to reveal the rapture. And then he's getting ready to re reveal the spiritual dynamics that are uh, in the church age. Second point, believing what, here's what we have to believe, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived. First of all, how can we even understand what that is? Spirit of truth. He's the one who reveals these things to us. And he's not telling us what what it looks like on some foreign uh, you know, solar system and some planet and some things, some secrets that we couldn't have possibly. No, he's talking about things the eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither have they entered into the heart of man about God. It's not about the universe, about things. It's about God himself that he has hid in himself and he has told no one. And now he's telling us through the spirit of truth. Will you believe him? What are you going to say? I'm, I don't believe that. There's no way. You could walk away saying, that's foolishness. But that is what the Spirit reveals to us. That is also the deep things of God. Now, this is the mind of Christ. This is the doctrine. This is the teaching that we have before us. That we are commanded, if we're going to remain in him, that we have to believe. 
if a person doesn't believe this, then they're not remaining in him. That's what we should tell. We, we know this is true. Was it easy for the disciples? Absolutely not. I'm sure they had a hard time understanding and believing the things that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, neither have they entered. It's new. New in the sense of never before seen or heard. That scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 2.9. Point number three, the words form a plan, an eternal purpose, a definite hope. And see, so it's not just the, you, the words remain in you. The words form thoughts and the word sentences and the sentences form thoughts and the thoughts well up to an eternal hope that God has for us, an eternal plan. That's what we ought to understand. It is according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's what we are to understand when we talk about the words. When Jesus is saying these words remain in you, he's talking about the hope of our calling. Those words are precious to us. Now, I know when Israel, when the law was read, and that resonated with them because that was their calling. That was why God called them. And it was all contained and defined in the law, the Mosaic law. So when they read those verses, man, I bet they were reverberating and resonating and, and identifying and, and all of that. But that's, that's not what I get when I read the law. It is when I read these words from Jesus and I read about in the epistles where the Holy Spirit has given us that much more information that I begin to vibrate and resonate with. It is these words that are, are retained and special for me that I would hold on to and cling to and, and know that this is re related to my heritage and who I am in Christ. And all of the descriptions and the metaphors and the analogies given are for me to understand some, something about the relationship that I have with Christ and how that relationship extends to the Father. So it, 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 these are the words, literally, that form a definite hope within us. Point four. So these words are precious to us. They are the hope of our calling. And when I, I remember I copied this again from our, our notes. And, and what I'm going to do is for those on the call, or those who generally are on the calls, I will send the notes for John chapter 15 that I have in Word document form after this is over. So you can have that right in, in front of you as well. So they are the hope of our calling. Matthew 13 talks about the pearl of great price. So this person found this pearl and when he goes out, he sells everything he has in order to buy this field where this is found. Everything. He, he gives up everything because it's that important to him. Really that important. Uh, same with the, the Apostle Paul. He found something that was great. He says... I'm determined to go out and preach, show the administration of this mystery to everyone. 
and and, and then he talks about how it is the, tr the the treasure of wisdom and knowledge it's in Christ all treasures this this is the the in 1 Corinthians 2 7 he talks about that the wisdom this hidden wisdom that was destined for our glory before time began imagine that before time but we can't talk about these things how can we talk about something that happened before time began how we can time began with the creation of the universe how can we know what happened before that well God, that's what no eye has seen that's what no ear has heard that's what has not entered into the heart of man that's what it is we can know this information and that's what we're all about in this age the calling us out many sons into glory so i'll leave those scriptures for you to look up and for yourself so point b to b in our notes the father loves christ and now christ loves us this is toward the end of verse 11 where it says i have told you this so that my joy be in you and your joy may be complete if you could whether well, that is if you keep my command you will remain in my love just as i have kept my father's command and remain in his love so there it is that's point point b that's how it all works uh, loving christ here means that christ will be the focal point of the father's plan and then he puts Christ on the battlefield to execute his plans. Same thing happened to us. The Father loved Christ, put him on the battlefield. Christ loves us, puts us on the battlefield to execute his plan. But just note, it's not a different plan. It's the same plan of the Father. Although we're not called upon to die for the sins of the world as Christ was. We're called upon to abide or remain in him. Right, to see the same plan from the Father. Point C, 2C. Christ loving us means that we now are the focus and on the battlefield. Well, there's no doubt about that. His loving us means that, yes, he's put us into the plan. Just like when Christ was talking about this love in John 17, he says, for you love me before the creation of the world. Well, what is that to say? It means there's, there's that time again before creation that God was thinking and he loved Christ. Well, what does he mean he loved Christ? He put Christ into play. He, Christ was going to be the focal point of what the Father's eternal purpose was. To bring many sons into glory. That we might be conformed to the very image of his son. All of that was planned before time began. Yeah. Moving forward. Point D. We are to love each other. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, point D. Did I skip something here? Let me see. I think we did. Point D. Keeping his commands. Keeping his commands. Uh, it's two in two ways because we get to this commands. Unfortunately, when somebody reads the word commands, they always think about the Old Testament. That's they think about the Mosaic Law. You know, but in this case, we're not talking about the Mosaic Law, and we're not 
talking about Israel. We're talking, and this is where I was saying in the opening, that we have to keep the continuity of the context. John chapter 13, 14, 15. And obviously we're going into 16 and 17 for this discourse. We're just not there yet. So, so keeping his commands means two things. It means, one, learn to keep his new words, which we just talked about, which eyes have not seen, ear hath not heard. And these words, where Christ laid out, he talked about the relationship that he had with the Father, that it would be conferred upon us when the church age began. So he was in, in the Father, the Father was in him, everything that he was doing, the Father was doing through him. And then he's saying, later, when the Spirit comes, you will be in me and I will be in you. We will be in you, and so forth. The same relationship that is never before seen is part of this new age that we live and breathe in. So that's an important part. And two, point number two, stay together, right? Love one another. In other words, you, you see... Uh, look, when you look aside and you see other believers in Christ in this age, they are precious as well. They are precious. Everyone born of God, we love, right? This is First this is John. This is how John says it, First John 5. Here it is. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. So this is, and for the disciples, this meant stay together, don't fragment, love one another, right? be devoted to one another. Right? Uh, and this is was important. Remember, this, this is the foundation of the church. This can't be that the, those who were fishermen go back to fishing, those who were doing tax collecting, whatever they were doing, they go back to it, and that's the end of their life. It was a great time walking around with Jesus. But now we're going to go back and do our own thing. No, it wasn't that at all. They had to stay together. That was important. And how does he relate that? Love one another. I know you all are different, but you have a special bond now. And you're this new entity called the church. Love one another. That's what his keeping his commands meant for the disciples, those two things. Now, of course, today, in today's world, we, it's so big, people don't recognize that believers all around the world, in every nation, there probably are believers in Christ. Those are our brothers. That's what that means. We ought to pray for them. We ought to understand who they are and recognize that we are not in the world all alone. God has other believers in the world who are the same as us who have the baptism of the Spirit, who are in Christ. So just having that respect and devotion toward those of us who are on the ground. And then we certainly keep his words, right? And these are the words that the, not only did Christ lay down, but the apostles and prophets also laid down for us. Point 2F. Joy is also mentioned here. So his purpose brings joy to our hearts it's knowing so yeah i mean just imagine the the trouble 
the turmoil that you will face as a result of running around telling people things that eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, neither have they entered into the heart of man. But even though we're persecuted and we're maligned and we're judged, we still, there's a, because we know we're doing God's will, we know that this is his will, it, there's a joy that brings us. A cheerfulness, a calm delight, a satisfaction that we are fellowshipping in the Father's eternal purpose. And it doesn't matter what comes. And Christ said it this way, for the joy set before him, he despised the shame, you know, endured the cross. This is in Hebrews chapter 12. And he is set down at the right hand of him. He, for the joy. So, so in the same way, we can have that joy as we think about, even though persecuted, that we are in the Father's eternal purpose. We are literally the focus of the Father. And in this world, yeah, you're going to have trouble, but just know He has overcome the world. And, and we are literally doing the Father's will. There's a scripture <clears throat> I could give you in this regard. It's Philippians um, 1, Philippians chapter 1, and this is what it says, <clears throat> verse, from verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Notice that oneness, the togetherness fellowship with one another there it is displayed right there but in verse 28 and following without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you and see because and this is what can happen if you don't have that hope instilled and the joy this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed but that you will be saved in that by God and saved here means delivered for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is what it means to be identified with Christ in this world. We're going to have trouble. Not to be frightened by it. Don't worry, no matter what happens, whether by life or by death, we belong to Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. No hardship, no turmoil, famine, whatever you name. It can't, nothing in all creation can do it. So, that's the joy. We talked about that. We gave it some, some time to understand. Moving forward, point three is from John 15, 12 through 17. And it continues on that theme to love each other. More analogies given as well. First point, father, the fa father loved, should be loved Christ. Let me correct my notes here. And he responded with love and obedience. Christ responded with love. That's how we respond and have reciprocal love 
So <clears throat> the Father loved Christ. Christ responded to the Father with love and obedience to the Father's word. It wasn't just, I love you. You love me, I love you. <laughs> it, it was, you love me means you are putting me in your service. Means you, you are giving me the authority now to execute the plan. Like Christ says, everything that belongs to the Father has been given to me. That's what it means for the Father to love Christ. And then Christ is saying, you now, for us, Christ loved us, and we respond with love and obedience. Now we are to love each other as well. So, so we do the same thing. What does it mean Christ loved us? It means that he... Uh, not only we're, we are called in him by the Father, and we are in Christ, and now we have been put into service. We are now in the world, and we are to respond to Christ with love and obedience. The love is representative of the devotion and dedication to Christ's will over our lives, just like Christ had that same love and devotion to the Father's will over his life. Same thing for us, but now we've replaced the Father with Christ. Christ is our Lord. Now we should know that everything that Christ has belongs to, you know, to him, it is from the Father. Point B, our love must have the proper motivation. Now just think about that. We just can't say we just love. Love is an open-ended word. It needs to have an object to complete its meaning, if we must say it that way. If somebody just said, I love, your question should be, you, you love what? Right? It shouldn't be, I, I love too, right? <laughs> love what is the question. Maybe the person says he loves something that's evil, and you can't follow with, yeah, you love him too, right? You can't. So, hold on. So that is the thought. Hang on a second. So that's a thought with, in terms of love. It is motivational. It's directional. It, it is not just, you know, I love. A person says, I love the Mosaic Law. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean you love the Mosaic Law? Well, we love what God is, is saying in the Mosaic Law, because we know it's part of his plan. But we know that those words are not directly to us. So when he's saying uh, he loved us, he put us in the plan, right? We're, we're part of the plan. He chose us in him before the creation of the world. That's specific love. That's motivational understanding, right? That's how that we should see that. So let's keep going. Um, so this is point number three, where it says our, our love must have the proper motivation or else and it will not have the proper direction. Point C, we are a unique group with a purpose that is different from Israel. New, never before seen, and now revealed as the Father's eternal purpose, right? That's... It's just to sum up who we are. It's new. Now, when we say we have a new, with a purpose that is different from Israel, in some way, I must say, 
that when we put it all together, we put what happened to Israel, we, that's God's purpose too. But God's ultimate eternal purpose is what he has accomplished in Christ. And that is bringing many sons into glory. So Israel is a component part of the Father's plan. So Israel was a part of the Father's plan as well. It just wasn't revealed to them what God has given to us. So yes, they, it's a different purpose than Israel because who we are, what God wanted from uh, eternity past before he created all things is he wanted us. How did he get to this? Well, he, he came through it through all of these component parts. He had to create all things, the universe, including planet Earth. He had to allow for it to fall. He had to give free will. He had to do all these things. They're all part of the Father's eternal purpose. But now it's revealed what that eternal purpose is in detail in this age. He didn't tell all the other dispensations previous to this one what his eternal purpose was. Now he has revealed it. <clears throat> so we're unique in this sense. Point D, we are to love each other as Christ loved us. That's John 15, 12. In the same way he loved the Father. That's John 15 and 10. So our love is descriptive here. It becomes descriptive. Not only uh, when we see 1510, let me read it. Hold on. 1510. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Right? That's, that's how it works. Keeping his commands. What are his commands? His words, like we read in the earlier uh, verses. We cherish them. We guard them. Those are what are important to us. And then uh, he gives this friendship analogy in point E. Again, there is that condition. It has conditions. Here it is. You are my friends if you do what I command. So that's verse 14. That's important. So... The friendship analogy is another way, just like he gave the metaphor analogy, then he talked about reading, if my words remain in you, you remain in me, and so forth. And then he talked, now he's switching it to love. He gives another analogy on top of that, friendship. And the distinction of friendship is point F. A servant does not know his master's business. Uh, you know, and that's a difference between what was before and what now is. <clears throat> when he says this, he's really relating it to the mystery. Because Israel was servants. They didn't know the master. They didn't know what was behind uh, the, the father's intentions for doing what he did. But we have, and this is 1 Corinthians 2.16, the mind of Christ. And Christ, who had the mind of the Father. So we it goes all the way back. It keeps going, cascading all the way up and down to the Father's plan. That's what we are. That's who we are in Christ. So we ought to love each other. That's what it means. It means 
being devoted to one another, committed to one another, um, that we all have the same mind, right? That we are, this is, and we should note when we say that, Christ is physically not here. God the Holy Spirit is. But through the Holy Spirit, we are connected to believers wherever they may be in this world. If they are saved, then they have the Holy Spirit in this age. They are brothers and sisters, part of the church, whether they are ignorant or not of God's eternal purpose. They are still our brothers and sisters. So we ought to treat them with respect, with dignity and honor, just like God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit do. And give them the opportunity to grow in grace and to learn what the plan is as well. They're our brothers and sisters. We're all we have in this world. If you, you, There's no way you can rub shoulders with somebody who's an unbeliever and think that you have some sort of relationship and fellowship with them. The world will hate you. This is what it heads into the next phrase in John 15, 18 through 27. And I say the path forward is treacherous. Let's go through it. So the world hates us because of Christ. So I say don't take it personally. Now, in, when I say don't take it personally, I mean that... The world is never going to respond to you as though you belong to it. Because you don't belong to it. The moment you believed in Christ, you were God took you out of the world. And that is through the baptism of the Spirit where he identified you with the person of Christ. You are no longer of this world. Christ says they are not of this world any more than I am of this world. That's in John 17. We went through all of those scriptures. So don't take it personally. It's not about you. The world's going to hate you. They're going to reject you for reasons that don't make sense to you. It's possible that, and you know, some people are really hypersensitive when it comes to this. And they can't take rejection good, right? So, so if somebody rejects them, they take it personally. What did I do? Could I have done this better? Well, man, why did they reject me? Let me, let me get another opportunity don't take it personally. Jesus is saying, don't worry. Just go out. There's going to be some who believe. And there's going to be some who, who don't believe. Yeah. It's all going to be about teaching down the world. If they accept my teaching, then they'll accept your teaching. It's, don't, it's not personal. We have to recognize that people have the right to reject us. And, and we have to respect that. That they have that right. And that's a God-given right of their free will. And they're making uh, the use of it. And they're going to be responsible for it. Point B. We will be persecuted by those who hate us. There's no doubt about it. Hating us is expressed in persecution. <laughs> It says the world hates you. It doesn't mean, well, the world just hates you. Well, we say we hate the world too. But it doesn't just end there. The outworking of hate is to be persecuted. And that's what's going to happen. Well, they put Christ on a cross. They crucified him. 
And, and remember who we're talking about. He's talking, we're talking about the Lord of glory, the creator of all things. Without him was not one thing made that was made. They crucified him. Christ says, well, don't worry about it. Pick up your cross. Follow me. That means you're going to go the same route. If you follow me, you're going to be crucified. They're going to persecute you. So our calling is to teach the new way. If you're trying to teach the new way in this world, you're going to be persecuted. Just know that. Not everyone's going to believe. But we're looking for those who do believe. We're, not, we're going to let those who don't believe have their way. We're going to try to convince them. But at the end, the end of the day, it's their choice, right? Yeah. Point C. We know, we should know that we are in enemy territory. We should know that. We're in the world. We're not of the world anymore. Well, why, how can we say that? It's because we've been sanctified by the truth. And the word is truth. And it's, it's through that baptism of the Spirit that we now are, are no longer a part of this world system anymore. And we even have verses that are very stark in this regard. Do not set your mind on earthly things. Set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Don't, do not on earthly things. Imagine that. How you, what's above? What eye has not seen, what ear has not heard. The, the teaching, the new understanding of who we are in Christ and all of that is about our destiny. The wisdom that was destined for our glory before time began. So we're in enemy territory. So I will tell you, always dress with full armor. So when we think about this analogy in Ephesians chapter 6, Verse 10, let's read a little bit of it. Finally, 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers, against this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, done everything to stand, stand firm then. And he goes into what? The armor that we have. So this is part of who we are we can keep reading down to verse 20 but you should know we're, we're in a battle it'd be one thing if he told us okay you're saved now so just float on the clouds just know that god has you and that's it no problems in this you're going to just float on into the eternity that's not it you saw what kind of language paul gives here while we're living in enemy territory. That's what we should expect. This is not our home. We're not, we shouldn't be trying to make a home for us down here. Or make a place for us. This is, we don't belong here. So we're never going to fit in. We are heavenly people now. And this is 
not our destiny as well. Point D. The Spirit will testify toward the end here of the chapter 15. The Spirit will testify and the much more information to us. And, and so we must also testify to the truth. So, so what I'm saying is, this is all after the fact. As we read these words, right, Pentecost already happened. 2,000 years have expired. So the Spirit continued to testify about this much more information that Christ said there, he would give much more. And that, that is given to us in the epistles that um, we have in the New Testament. And so we must also testify to the truth. It, it is upon us, just like it was upon the disciples to testify, to go out and declare these words, to let people know where we stand. And yeah, we're going to be persecuted for it in this world. All the disciples were martyrs, most of them, if not all of them. They lost their lives because of the truth, because they were set apart unto this truth. And they did it with joy in their hearts. So we can expect trouble in this world. And in fact, that's what's coming up in this world. You will have trouble. But we ought to be of good cheer because Christ has overcome the world. So no matter what happens, they can't take us out of the position we are in, in Christ. We are conquerors, more than conquerors, through him who loved us. So we're going to close, uh, but next week we're going to start with chapter 16. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. So remember that second part of loving each other is stay together. Stay as one so you will not fall away. Let's bow our heads. We'll continue with chapter 16 next week. Thank you, Father, for this chapter, this glorious chapter of how we ought to walk in Christ, how we ought to grow and bear witness to the things that we have learned in this world. Thank you so much for the analogies given, for metaphors, and, you know, we, as we think about who we are, Lord, we... We understand that there's no way we can pay you back for choosing us, for saving us. But we can honor you with love and obedience to your word, to your plan, and have the proper motivation and direction in our lives. Father, we thank you for those who are on this call, those who were hear the sound of my voice. We pray that you will teach them, direct them, challenge them, to uh, see that your word is being confirmed. And this is the proper direction. All of this we ask in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who sacrifices life for us. He gave himself up for us. So we thank you for his sacrifice as we have honored and lifted him up this in communion service. It's in his name that we're here. It is in him that we live, move, and have our being. 
and it is in his name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.